The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. So can we afford one of our national treasures, New Zealand's superannuation? It's been one of the staples of debate in our political economy now for 30 years. And the assumption is, nah, we can't afford it. We've got to, we have to move the age of eligibility for retirement from 65 to 67. However, whenever we've tried that, there's usually one party or two that jump up and say, nope, that's not good and usually involves a party with Winston Peters in it. And Winston Peters, at the grand old age of 78, is still dominating our landscape for our debate on New Zealand superannuation. Interesting, of course, that he is the Deputy Prime Minister again uh, on an income of $334,000 per year, is also collecting New Zealand superannuation at $23,000 a year as his, his right as is completely legal and is very rarely challenged in public. There was a bit of a kerfuffle before the 2017 election about how much super he was claiming. It turned out he was claiming the single uh, uh, rate when he should perhaps have been claiming the double rate and he made a refund. And as his declaration for the 2020 year in Parliament, when he was last in Parliament, shows he is also a member of the Government Superannuation Fund, as a parliamentarian in that fund before it was cut off in 1992. So he is in a position uh, to claim a defined benefit pension, as well as the New Zealand Superannuation Fund once he is retired or is no longer the, the Deputy Prime Minister. So clearly uh, not a poverty issue in terms of receiving New Zealand superannuation. This is important because this week we have Jane Wrightson, the Retirement Commissioner, on When the Facts Change to talk about a paper the Retirement Commission has produced looking at the affordability of New Zealand superannuation and what options we have if we think it's unaffordable. It turns out our scheme, and it is a national treasure, is a gem. Because it's so simple. If you turn 65, you get it. It is indexed to wages, so it keeps up broadly with the cost of living. And for those people who own a home, it makes sense. It actually means you can have a relatively non-poverty style of living. Now, that changes once you're renting, and if you have some sort of uh, drama with healthcare or with relationships or whatever, 
it isn't a comfortable place to be. It's certainly not gold-plated, but it is simple and it is actually cheap, much cheaper than the pension systems in other developed countries, which are all very fancy and complicated and involve means testing and income testing and private superannuation and subsidies for private schemes and compulsion and not compulsion. It's all very complicated overseas and quite expensive to maintain, whereas our system costs 0.003% to run. It is a beauty. In this paper, the Retirement Commissioner Jane writes and argues we should keep 65. Shifting it to 67 is not only not going to save us an almost awful lot of money, it will impose enormously unfair costs on Māori, Pacifica and women in particular. But if you accept that it isn't affordable to continue with New Zealand superannuation in its current form, how might you change it? And how would you do it? Because as we've discovered over the last 30 years in our particular version of a vetocracy and the role of Winston Peters in that, it's been very difficult to come to a conclusion and try to change it. And in particular, the debates over the superannuation surcharges of the late 1980s and early 1990s are testament to that. But if you were to change it, what would be the fairest way to do it? And in this discussion, we find that income testing is the fairest way to do it. Because we know that right now, about 50,000 New Zealanders are claiming New Zealand superannuation, $23,000 a year, even though they receive incomes of over $100,000 a year. That's a billion dollars going to people who are earning more than $100,000 a year, a billion dollars of taxpayers' money that is going there to protect them from poverty. Hardly ever gets commented on. It's not something you'll hear about in Mike's Minute. Perhaps you should. We talk about it this week on When the Facts Change. Well, kia ora, and welcome to When the Facts Change to Jane Wrightson, the Retirement Commissioner. Great to have you on the show again. Kia ora, good to be here. Now, you've got a, a special paper out which looks at the broad picture of New Zealand superannuation, one of those crucial debates in our political economy. And you've addressed a couple of really essential questions. Firstly, is New Zealand superannuation affordable for Aotearoa New Zealand in the long run, the current setup for New Zealand superannuation? Because there's this widespread sort of knee-jerk view that, oh, no, we can't afford it long run. But is that really the case? Uh, not at the moment. It's a, certainly a large uh, portion of the Crown accounts. It's a second uh, behind health. But it's affordable in the sense of if you compare us to, say, OECD countries, um, we're the eighth lowest pension payer in the OECD. I, I found that remarkable. I didn't know that before I started. And when you look at projections out and you look at things like the age, uh, you know, 53% of countries in the OECD are going to have a pension age of 65 in, uh, by 2060. So there's a lot of um, talk around the unaffordability of it. Um, it's not always backed up by a really broad analysis, which is what we've tried to do. You know, any large chunk of money is going to come under uh, scrutiny, particularly by a Minister of Finance who needs to find an awful lot of money for an even bigger amount of things. But my position at this point is it is affordable on a number of metrics. 
Um, and so the question then becomes, what happens if it's not? And that's quite a way in the future. Yes, it's just worth um, dwelling on that affordability issue a bit because I was surprised too by some of the details in your paper. In particular, the cost of administering New Zealand superannuation. It's a relatively simple scheme. We all sort of understand it. You turn 65, you get it. <laughs> and doesn't matter if you earn money from a job or from an investment or you've got a house or some other assets, you just get it and you expect to get it, and no one complains when you get it. Whereas that's not the case necessarily overseas. No, it's not. Um, it's a very simple system, you're right, and that's why its administration costs are quite low. That's the thing about a universal entitlement. So you get it, provided you satisfy a few residency requirements, and you get it for the rest of your life. It's, it's, the, it's a public annuity. In Australia, for instance, you know, you don't get it. It's fully means-tested, and you don't get it to 67 and means testing is quite common in other countries. And their cost of administration is proportionately much higher. These are the trade-offs. That's right. And I was surprised how low the costs are here compared to elsewhere. 0.003% of the cost. For many years, I've, I've tried to understand the cost of funds management. And anything with three basis points as the cost of running a, a pension fund is remarkably low. We tend to forget that. And it's also one of the reasons in favour of a universal payment for, for welfare. Um, you forget how much it costs to administer the things with all sorts of hoops and loops and various ways to, to get around things. And the other aspect is uh, that, yes, it's going to increase as a share of our GDP, but it's so much lower than most of most other countries in the developed world, ones that we would consider ourselves peers with, which um, surprised me, particularly because some people here describe our pension scheme as gold-plated. Uh, and certainly if you uh, own a home here, it is possible to, to live on a pension. But we forget, I think, that it is already a relatively low pension, certainly compared to other places and compared to you know, what you'd need to live, certainly if you were having to rent. Right now, 40% of New Zealanders um, over 65 are living on NZ Super alone, um, and another 20% on just a bit more. And all of them will tell you that this is not gold-plated. It's not starvation level, because it's a, it's a, it's a poverty prevention mechanism in effect. But it's not wildly comfortable, which is why you need a good system that um, encourages private provision and private savings on top of it. Um, it's perfectly you're perfectly able to live on the pension if you have your own home, uh, if you have no further bigger life shocks like leaky or flood or whatever. Uh, your health costs are, are under control, and you're probably living regionally. Uh, it's pretty tough in the, in the big city with a few problems on your hand. That's, that's right. And, and it strikes me too that if there is something that's unaffordable about our pension scheme, it's not so much the amounts that are being paid or how many people are getting it or the eligibility, it's actually the costs of living aside from the income. And my view is that um, it's our affordable housing uh, crisis that affects everyone, which is actually at the heart of you know any of the the unsustainability issues with our pension system as well. 
we say on the paper that tomorrow's pensioners will not be the same as today's, right? So we have this kind of stereotype that at the moment that says wealthy boomers, too much money, too comfortable, intergenerational transfers, blah, 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 blah. It's true for some, but it's true for a relatively small percentage. Pensioners in 20 to 30 years are much more likely than now not to have a paid off home or be paying a mortgage or be renting. And all of those three things are problematic because the pension is based on you having relatively few housing costs. So the world is changing around us, uh, which makes it even more important that pension policy and pension change itself takes a much broader holistic view and says, what can we look out and see? And what is the right citizen-based response to this? That's right. Now, so if you, if you, uh, except, therefore, that there has to be some change in the pension system to make it better in the long run. The default position for a lot of political parties in Aotearoa, at least for the last decade, has been, well, the obvious thing to do if you're going to uh, reduce the cost of it reasonably quickly is to extend the age of eligibility from currently 65 to something like 67. You can debate how long it takes you to do it and what sort of exemptions there are for that, but this has to be done. It's just a natural thing. And people, of course, point to other countries where there have been increases in the age. And, of course, here as well. I mean, I mean, back 40 years or so ago, the um, uh, age of eligibility was lower than 65. It went up to 65. We've obviously seen first Labor and then National propose increases in the retirement age and uh, ACT has also been in favour of that, I understand, although Labor obviously has changed its changed its view between the 2011 and 2017 elections uh, and the current um, new government arrangement uh, was to keep the age of uh, eligibility at 65 as um, requested by New Zealand First. Um, requested is a word I've used. So we've had this, you know, assumption. It has to be going up to 67. I just wanted to drill into that a bit and look at the fairness of it and bring to life some of the issues we have at the moment, particularly with some groups in our society who not only live for shorter periods but also arrive at that age of 65 in quite a different shape than some other groups. Can you talk about the the fairness of shifting it from 65 to, let's say, 67? Well, moving the age up is cheap. It's the cheapest option and the simplest option. And it's also one of the less fair ones. And that's also uh, something we talk about on the paper. Um, I'm particularly interested in this as a woman because if, who, does, who does it hurt? It hurts women largely because the, uh, the gender pay gap turns into the pension pay gap and women arrive at retirement with considerably less savings than men. There's a number of statistical studies that, that, that talk about this. The other groups that are, of course, uh, affected for similar, but not the same, similar reasons are Māori Pacifica and, of course, uh, manual workers. And I think any principled policy change needs to look holistically at the entire cohort and go, if we're going to have a change, uh, like, say, it's the easy one, put the age up, which is fine if you're a well-paid office worker, you're not going to care much, really. But it's not if you're not. 
So there's a, a number of things that have to be looked at at the same time. Who does it hurt? What are the transitional provisions? We never hear any talk about that. What will we do about the transitional benefit system? Because it's not the same for beneficiaries as it is for pensioners. And what will we do in terms of encouraging the private savings piece? Because if somebody's got two more years to fund, that's two more years and that's quite a lot. Add on to that our increasing longevity. And you can see it's a little bit harder than it looks. And it really concerns me when the conversation is diluted to black, white, yes, no, because it isn't right and it isn't fair. So the, in particular, Māori and Pacifica uh, are living for shorter periods, so therefore they get less time on New Zealand superannuation apart from anything else. And also, this is something that surprised me from the paper, there are fewer who actually get to the age of 65. They've died of some accident or some illness beforehand. So not only have they got there is a you know, structurally shorter period on New Zealand superannuation, but a bunch don't even get there. That's right. And you'll hear voices within Maoridom say that's why the pension age should be lower for certain groups, including us. Um, the, the flip side to that, of course, is the increasing uh, brown pop, young brown population in New Zealand. So the irony of, of all of this is that the, um, the, the people uh, between, say, 20 and 40 today are more likely to be brown than they were 20 or 30 years ago. And it's them who are paying, for instance, the pensioners of my age group. So we have to be careful around this because equity events is always throw up inconvenient truths. Um, and this is one of them. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply, and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so this paper uh, recommends that essentially the status quo be retained, keeping it at 65. But then the question is asked, okay, if you think you do need to make it more affordable, uh, what other ways could you change it other than um, extending the age of eligibility? And one area that, um, you know, we've looked at in the far distant past, in the late 80s and early 90s, but has been sort of scrubbed off the um, political debate field by various people is looking at income testing. 
Uh, because the other figure that surprised me from the papers that almost 50,000 New Zealanders are working and earning more than $100,000 a year plus collecting the New Zealand superannuation. And if they're a couple, it's around about $22,000. So you could argue a, a benefit designed to keep people out of poverty, a billion dollars in total for 50,000 people is being paid to people who are already receiving income of $100,000 a year, which doesn't on the face of it seems fair, seem fair, particularly if you're one of those people in that sort of uh, 20 to 60 group who are working hard and paying paying taxes and GST, and that is, in effect, going to those people who um, probably don't need that $20,000. So... Um, what's the what's the feeling? What's the what's the thought on on how you could test for income at least to try to reduce the costs? It's hard and it's controversial, but I wanted to try and get the conversation operating a little more broadly. Going, there were more than there was more than one way to skin a cat in this in this uh, case. Yes, age is simple, but to make that a thing you need to have a whole bunch of other policy tools executed at the same time. Fine. If you look at income testing, and, I'm, and I deliberately mean income testing, not means testing, it's perfectly fine for older people to have assets uh, because I hope that they do. If you're still working and if you're earning over twice the median wage, we say, which is 100, 100 and mumble, thousand, then it seems to me to be a useful question to go, is this right? Right now, the people claiming it have every entitlement to do so. I'm not criticising them at all. But if we're looking at ways, for instance, to reduce the spend, then I would have thought you wouldn't necessarily rule this out. The biggest criticism of this, because all ideas have you know bad sides as well as good sides, the biggest criticism of this is the evasion industry that would drive around it. You know, we know that people would be would be very selfish or, or, or um, very self-aware um, and and almost certainly try and do evasion work. And you go, that's that would be unfortunate. But having said that, um, IR deals with this all the time in many other areas and you just add it to a list of things to do. <laughs> yes, um, I, they'll appreciate that. Uh, the IR seems to be regularly asked to do lots of things. <laughs> this is true. Um, this is the problem when you have a good computer system in government. Could you... Tell us, though, do you think that capital income should also be included in that discussion around income testing? You'd have to do a lot more work around this, and we have not done that. Um, this paper is trying to, if you like, mark out the football field. Um, if that option was of interest to a government, I would expect it to be put under the microscope and for those kind of questions to be sorted. So the short answer is I don't know. But I don't think putting up different ideas for dealing with a bigger problem is necessarily wrong. It might not fly, but it just seems to me to be um, odd that the, in some ways the same people that were saying, put the age up, um, it's ridiculous, are often the people also claiming and earning quite good money. And you go, I'm not sure, I, I think we should unpack this a little bit. Yes, and what you're doing is straying into a territory which in political life um, has this crackling sound of the third rail. <laughs> you know, don't, don't be touching that thing, it's going to go zap. And that's the value, I think, of having these independent um, commissioners, people in public life, able to say things in public with resources that are 
you know, that normally a politician wouldn't touch for fear of um, stumbling over the track and being burnt to a crisp. So... And I don't envy the politicians their job in this space. This is hard, you know. I'm not naive enough to think that making changes like this is easy um, or even easy to corral your, uh, your, your cabinet friends. I don't know. But you're right. I think it's my job to say there are other options out there. We need to think about who was hurt by policy change and who was benefiting from it. And we need to have a lot more data in the public domain. Uh, because as you say, you've learned things in this paper, and so have I. It's been a very big uh, research project for us. We cite something like 66 sources for our work, and you may disagree with it, but you can't say it's not well-researched. <laughs> That's right. And one of the other recommendations from the paper is that it would be good, given that this third rail is crackling away in the background, for politicians to come together and think a bit more long-term about it. Can you talk about that idea of some sort of consensus or accord uh, to try to surmount this, um, to collectively leap over the third rail instead of all stumbling into it? Yeah. Do I think it's possible these days as we become more and more fragmented uh, and more and more polarised? Probably not. But wouldn't, isn't it an interesting challenge to our people in the Beehive uh, to, to, who are, will be as frustrated as anybody else with seeing slow progress, with seeing stupid fights erupt over stupid things? Wouldn't it be a useful concept to go, are there some key issues in New Zealand which ought to be solved collectively because they're longer than a parliamentary term, be that three, six or nine years? And so I would put... Uh, NZ Super in that bu bucket, I would put infrastructure in that bucket, I would put sustainability and climate change in that bucket, but quite possibly education policy or health, because the, the flip-flopping, of course, is the worst for citizens and absolutely the worst for taxpayers. So for things like NZ Super, you know, it's not my job to make the decision, it's theirs. Um, it's my job to say, I think, have you thought of everything? Here's some inconvenient truths. Here's some really good ways to, to shore up this position. And are we doing the right thing for, in this case, senior New Zealanders? And do you think, though, that this is possible? Because a lot of people say, you know, we've been talking about this for a couple of decades and we haven't seemed to make any progress. And whenever someone seems to put their head above the parapet, it gets blasted off. But, but, and I've, I think about this quite a bit, we do have these um, great national challenges where sometimes there is a, an accord that everyone reaches. And I think in particular of the, you know, the inflation challenge and threat of the 1980s, where effectively both sides of parliament came together and said, right, we need an independent reserve bank and an effort to crunch it down to a, a level people want, and that's useful for everyone in the long run, and it would mean some short-term economic and social pain, but we're, we're happy to take it, um, although it has to be said they were the, not necessarily the ones who were unemployed at the time. I remember because I was unemployed at the time. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, we've looked, we've done it, for example, on inflation. We did it on resource management reform, at least in the late 1980s, early 1990s. We did it with public sector finances in the late 1980s and 1990s. We came to these bipartisan arrangements. So it is possible. Um, do you think that given that there are these challenges coming and we, we seem to get these regular 
forecasts of you know uh, of the rising cost of these things that it is possible for people to come together in a, in a political sense. Well, all I can say is I hope so. You know, I think everybody is worried about polarisation these days. We're seeing awful examples of it internationally. We're seeing it grow in New Zealand a little bit. And I think that what we think the average New Zealander thinks these days is unable to be defined anymore. So we are fragmenting in our views. But, you know, this is the challenge of leadership, isn't it? Um, We put enormous expectations on our politicians, you know, I would not want to be a politician for quids. It's a really tough life. But I think that they have opportunities as well as threats when they consider what could be done by reaching across the house. Um, And you wouldn't do it for everything. (laughs) But you kind of pick your battles. And, And one of the interesting battles I saw, which was very divisive a couple of years ago, was around euthanasia, of course. You know, um, and I watched the House that night when they passed uh, the bill and saw people from all sides of the House talking from their hearts about what they wanted to do for New Zealand and the country. Now, a lot of people disagree with that. A number of people did not, but it was the right thing to do. You know, so I think it is possible. And with marriage equality, the same yeah. sort of um, scenes. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the ways to, to, to look at NZ Super in this context, I think, because you're right, there's bumbles around and um, it goes quiet for a bit and then it usually pops up as an, an election issue for, you know, not even a reason sometimes. And that goes against the, the one of the core principles around the system is that it has to be stable, right? It has to be stable because people who are working their way through their working life need to um, understand that the pension will be there for them and that they've got a job to do and getting private savings sorted out. And they're going to be less willing and able to think about their private savings, I think, if they think the system's going to wobble, which is what it did in, this, in the 70s. Um, so one of the ways you could do this is by asking my office or somebody to do one of these reviews every three years and maybe even report to Parliament and go, this is what we see. Either, goodness me, we really can't afford it now, and here's some options that we really suggest you might need to do, or look, it's got better, or it's the same, or the demography of New Zealand has changed, or the longevity in New Zealand has actually reduced post-COVID rather than increased as it was predicted to do pre-COVID. All of these factors are relevant, and they should be able to help decision-making. So I would, I'm, one of the things in the paper is saying maybe we should do a review every nine years. And then the government of the day or the parliament of the day could discuss it and go, what do we think about this then? Oh, we look forward to um, the response from politicians <laughs> and the public. <laughs> Jane Wrightson, the Retirement Commissioner, uh, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. My pleasure. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.